Well, thank you, Paige, and thank you, Mandy, and others for leading us this morning in worship. Fellowship Franklin, how are you doing this morning? All right, good to see you. Uh, some of you are saying, who's that guy? And let me clarify the confusion if we have not crossed paths before. Um, if you've not seen me up here before, my name is Mike. Uh, I'm an elder here at Fellowship Bible, and I serve among your body of elders and have done so for the last few years. Uh, my family and I worship over at the Brentwood campus, typically on Sunday mornings. Um, and uh, in the absence of Rob and Lloyd, uh, Rob last week was supposed to be away at a marriage retreat, and Lloyd was in quarantine. Uh, from a COVID exposure. So uh, they had a rare but well-deserved weekend off. And so I was delighted to be able to step in and uh, open up God's word in Brentwood last week. And this morning, we'll do the same uh, with you here in Franklin. So I'm delighted to be able to continue on in our text this morning in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, which is where we've been for a while. We took kind of a three-week hiatus to do a bit of a deep dive or kind of a topical look at the kingdom of God. Uh, this diversion happened around the election time, uh, which was convenient for many. God's got this. God's got this. He's in control, right? Um, and then also for us to really understand the Sermon on the Mount as a whole, we need to understand the kingdom of God and what that looks like. And so we're going to be spending time this morning in our text looking at what is the kingdom of God and how do we understand the application of some of Jesus' teachings, some of which are quite hard. Now, last time Rob was here, uh, a few weeks ago, three or four weeks ago, he led us through Matthew chapter 5, and he was in verses 38 to 42. So just by way of refresher, I'll just take you through some of the stuff that was discussed in that text. Uh, he was looking at the text that talked about, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them your other cheek also. If anyone sues you and takes your tunic, offer to them your cloak. And if anyone asks you to go with them one mile, go with them too. The, the one word heading in my Bible, right above verse 38, it says retaliation. Or as we understand Jesus' teaching, this is kind of the non-retaliation uh, for those who are actively against us. But as we see starting in verse 38, and it will continue on into our text today, all the way to verse 48, this is so much bigger than simply retaliation or non-retaliation. Uh, in fact, some commentators would say that these 10 verses in Matthew 5 are literally the most revolutionary moral teaching that has ever been put forth. And I don't say that this morning for shock value. I think I can actually defend that claim. When I was in seminary some 20 years ago, uh, I did a lot of writings or did a lot of reading on the writings of a man named C.S. Lewis. One of the books that he wrote is called The Abolition of Man. And in The Abolition of Man, Lewis, in the back of the book, puts forth about a 25-page appendix where he compares and contrasts the moral teachings of various civilizations that existed throughout the ages of the world. Uh, different uh, civilizations that existed in different geographies, different religions, separated perhaps by thousands of miles and by thousands of years. And Lewis would look at these different civilizations and look at how they defined their moral code. And when he compared them one by one by one by one, and I'm talking, he compared the ancient Egyptian to the Old Norse, to the Hindu, to the Babylonian, to the Roman, to the Greek, to the Jewish, to the Chinese. He looked at all of them and looked at how they defined their moral compass. 
because it was all captured in their writings. And by the way, Professor Lewis was the right guy for this task because not only was he an incredibly voracious reader and an unbelievable Oxford scholar, he also had a photographic memory. So he could connect the dots on these better than most. And when he put all of this on a table and kind of compared them uh, idea by idea, what he found was incredible continuity across all these various civilizations and various religions. There was a common thread of morality that existed among all of them, including prohibitions that forbid murder, prohibitions against adultery, against theft, against dishonesty. And he found in all of them admonitions that promoted caring for those in need, uh, conducting yourself honestly in all your dealings and so forth. It was utterly fascinating to see the commonality between these various civilizations' moral code. It's compelling. And it's not like the Norse sent someone to China and said, hey, find out what they're doing and report back. That's not how this went down. These guys were operating and functioning independently, and they all came up with very similar teachings. Now, what you don't find in any of this collective moral teaching in Lewis's appendix, what you won't find in there, in any of those ethical teachings, is what we find in our text this morning. In verses 38 to 48 of Matthew 5, Jesus is going to break through the common conventions of morality. And we're going to see that he's going to put forth the most radical love ethic that literally has ever been seen or heard before. Turn the other cheek when someone strikes you. Offer them your cloak when they sue you for your tunic. Love your enemies. Pray for those who are persecuting you. You won't find these teachings in anywhere other than your Christian Bible. And we have to assume, friends, that when Jesus taught this, that his hearers must have literally been startled. For Jesus was saying and teaching something that had not only never been heard before, he was saying it with clarity and with force. So we're going to pick up today where Rob left off in verse 42. We're going to pick up today into verse 43. And I want to look at kind of five statements that I think sum up what Jesus is saying in these verses today. The first statement is this, love your enemies. Verse 43 starts this way. It says, you have heard it said that you shall love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Now, loving your neighbor was a widely embraced concept for the people of Israel. Uh, Jesus, all throughout his ministry, excuse me, he would stop and he'd talk to people. And he'd almost uh, uh, quiz them. Hey, what's the greatest commandment of God? And the people would often report back, you're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Great. Jesus would say, what's the second greatest commandment? And people would say, love your neighbor as yourself. So loving your neighbor, even to the commoner, even, even to the person on the street, not the educated in the synagogue individual, but to the commoner, loving your neighbor was a common thread teaching. This was not a stretch for the people of Israel at all. But what Jesus is uncovering in our text is that the, the teachers in the synagogue, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they had developed an increasingly narrow definition of who their neighbor was that they were to show love towards. And what we see in Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25, you don't need to turn there, I'll just reference it for you. A lawyer goes to Jesus and asks the very direct and pointed question. Jesus, who is my neighbor? Right? Getting to Jesus to, to pin down, hey, who am I supposed to show love towards? Who is my neighbor? And Jesus responds to this lawyer by launching into the parable of the Good Samaritan. 
And it goes something like this. A man from Jerusalem was walking down to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers who stole his belongings, beat him up, and left him for dead. Jesus goes on to say that a priest walks by, a man of God walks by and doesn't help the man. A Levite walks by, someone who is from the bloodline of the priest, of the Aaronic priesthood. A Levite walks by, doesn't help the man. After that, a man from Samaria walks by, despised and hated Samaria walks by, and he stops. He puts the man on his donkey, takes the man to an inn where the Samaritan pays for his lodging for several days, gives this man food at his expense, pays for this man's medical expenses, and then says to the innkeeper, if this injured man requires anything else, please let me know. I'll come back in several days' time and I'll settle the bill. And Jesus concluded this parable with asking the question, which of these men proved to be the man's neighbor? But what was Jesus' point? Guys, our neighbor is not just someone of our own race. Our neighbor is not someone of our same socioeconomic standing or even our same religion. Our neighbor may not have any connection to us other than they are simply another human being that's in need. And what's our duty to our neighbor? Whether they be our friend or our foe, we are to love them. Now, this was a bit of a radical turn because as I mentioned before, the Pharisees and Sadducees had developed a bit of a limited understanding of neighbor. They had kind of taken liberty to add to God's word, not in an egregious way. It would have been a similar addition to what the serpent did to God's word when he spoke to Eve in the Garden of Eden. Just a little tweak is enough to skew the right understanding and the right application of God's word. But Jesus is gonna correct this false understanding for Jesus is gonna make it clear, we are not to hate our enemies. And the way that Jesus goes about this is awesome. He does this in very uniquely Jesus fashion in the Sermon on the Mount. You see, he's gonna bring an emphatic I statement to the equation. You have heard it said that you are to love your neighbors and hate your enemies, but I say you are to love your enemies. Jesus is gonna set his divine standard up against the perverted Jewish tradition and he's gonna take it down. Please note, it's worth seeing in this text that if Jesus had only intended to correct information, the I statement wasn't necessary. He was bringing not just grammatical correction, he was bringing theological correction in this statement as well. Here, as he had done many times before in the Sermon on the Mount, he is gonna say that what he says, his own word is placed above Jewish tradition and his own word is on par with scripture. He's gonna say, your great rabbis and great teachers have taught you to love only those who are like you, of your, those who are of your own preference and to hate your enemies. But he's gonna say, by my own authority, I declare that they are false teachers who have perverted God's word. The divine truth, he says, is my truth. You shall love your enemies. And he's gonna go on from there in verse 44 to say, we don't just love our enemies. You are going to pray for your persecutors. That's the next summary statement. 44b says, you are to pray for those who persecute you. Now, one of the commentators I read as I got ready for my sermon said, if you kind of start back at verse 38 
and you read to this point in the Sermon on the Mount, right? So just, you know, four, six verses. He says, you see slow but steady steps forward with every verse in terms of how we are to approach and, and engage with those who are against us. It starts with, don't take any evil initiative. And then moves forward to, don't avenge another's evil. And then forward still, don't resist the evildoer. And then offer to the evildoer more than they demand. And then don't hate the evildoer. Again, love the evildoer. And the final step forward is, we are to pray on behalf of the evildoer to God. That is the last step forward on this spectrum. And some of you might be thinking, really? The final step forward is to pray for our enemy? To pray for those who are persecuting us? Like, I got this. I do that all the time. Lord, knock out my enemies. Like, just do away with them, preferably in spectacular fashion, right? Some of you feel like you're spiritual giants because you pray for your enemies that way, right? That's not where Jesus is going in this text. He's not, he's not asking us and inviting us to pray for our enemies' detriment. He's inviting us to pray for our enemies' benefit. And for some of us, that's a, that's a new idea. Now, I don't know your story in the room here this morning. I don't, know, I don't know what comes to mind when you see the word pray for your enemy. Um, if you would just indulge me for a moment and just think through who comes to mind when you see the word enemy in your Bible, when it invites you to pray for those who are persecuting you, does a name come to your forefront of your mind? Do you see the specific face of somebody that you have intersected with, that you feel is your enemy or who has acted as your enemy? In one sense, anyone who is actively against you in word or deed could be considered your enemy. Who comes to mind when you see this text? Some of you might struggle here a little bit. I know I did. My 16-year-old daughter asked me last week as she was sitting in the passenger seat of my car as we're driving to the Brentwood campus, and she said, Dad, what are we learning today in church? I said, we're going to pray for our enemies and uh, love those who are enemies and pray for those who persecute us. She said, oh, okay. And she said, who's your enemy? And I said, I struggle with that. And she said, really? She's a teenager, so this might come easier for her, right? Uh, but, but she said, really, Dad? And I said, you know what, young lady? Um, this is, I live in Brantwood. You live in Franklin. I'm like, this is like Mayberry. I don't really have any enemies here. Not in the context in which I think Jesus is helping us to see and understand. I, I ran a, a business for 12 and a half years. I had competitors. They were actively working against me. I never thought of them as my enemies. I honestly struggled to think of who is my enemy in the modern day context. But I know that may not be true for some of you. Some of you, when you see the word enemy in your text, it takes you not more than a split second to see a face that comes to your mind's eye and you know immediately that person's my enemy. For some of you, it may be an ex-husband who divorced you. It might be an ex-wife who divorced you. For some of you, it might be a family member who harmed you. I know that was my mom's story. Some of you might see the face of a current or a former employer that you felt actively worked against you or harmed you. Or perhaps a former business partner that betrayed the business relationship. Some of you might see the face of a once close friend who violated in some way the friendship. What's true in almost all of these situations is that there's something that kicks in in our heart that resembles a deep desire for justice. We want the scales to be righted when we've been wronged. 
we kind of desire this vigilante form of justice. We want the wrongdoer to get what's coming to them. We want them to get theirs. We want the rights to be made wronged when we have been hurt. That's human. If we're honest about it, we kind of like the eye for an eye teaching, the tooth for a tooth teaching when we're the ones that have been hurt. But friends, as in all things, our example here is Jesus. And it was him who prayed for his tormentors literally while the iron spikes were being driven through his hands and through his feet. And when you look at that verse in the gospels, there's an imperfect verb tense used, which suggests that Jesus continued praying. He kept repeating, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And guys, if the cruel torture of crucifixion couldn't silence our Lord's prayer for his enemies, then what pain, what hardship have you endured that could justify the silencing of your prayers for your enemy? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the church leader and reformer who lived during the era of the Third Reich during World War II, he said, this is the supreme demand. Through the medium of prayer, we go to our enemy, we stand by his side, and we plead for him to God. Church, we are to bless those who curse us. If your enemy calls down disaster and catastrophe on your head, expressing in words their wish for your downfall, then we must retaliate by calling down heaven's blessings on them, expressing in our words and declaring in our words that we wish them nothing but good. This is the standard that Jesus Christ is calling all of us to in the text this morning. The third concept we see in the text is that we are to manifest our sonship. Verse 45 says, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. Why do we pray for those who persecute us? Because we imitate the character of God when we don't return evil for evil, but instead return good for evil. We pray for our enemies and we long for their benefit because that's how God treated us. When we were separated from God, when we were rebelling against him, Christ laid down his life for us. It says in the text, we are to pray for our enemies. Guys, Colossians 1.21 says that when we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. When we were God's enemies, he did that for us. That's the gospel. God extending his love to his enemies. And to understand uh, rightly the love that God has for us, you need to understand that there's four different words in the Greek language that are used for love. Four different words. In English, we're kind of robbed here. We got one word for love, love. In Greek, there's four. The first word in Greek that we see is called storge. It's the love between family members. The second word in Greek that you see is called philo or philia, which is considered friendship love. You heard of a philharmonic? That's the love of music. You'll have philosophy. It's the love of wisdom. That's friendship love is philo or philia. The third love is a romantic love called eros. And the fourth love is the love that we see described in the New Testament, which is describing God's love. It's the word agape. It is a completely distinctive kind of love. It is utterly selfless. Agape love, my friends, is the unconditional love of God that seeks its fulfillment only in the benefit of its recipient. There's nothing self-serving 
about agape love. And for those of you in the room who I see a few folks with notepads open and pens moving, I love seeing people who are Bible students. I wanna give you a challenge this morning. If you wanna get into this a little bit, do a word study in the New Testament on the term God's love or the love of God and tell me what you find. Because I'll tell you what I found. When you do a word search in the New Testament on God's love, there's always a correlation. You see the love of God connected with the expression of how God applied that love, which is offering his son as a sacrificial gift on our behalf. It's almost always connected in the same verse. When you're a brand new Christian and you start memorizing scripture, the first verse you normally memorize is John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. If you go to Romans 5:8, God showed his great love for us in this while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Galatians 2:20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 1 John 4.10, for, um, this is love. Not that we love God, but that God loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. It's utterly connected in the New Testament. God's love for us is expressed by the highest price he could pay for that love, the giving of his son on your behalf and on my behalf. My friends, that's the gospel. If you're a Christian in this room this morning, that's your story and that's my story. God didn't give us what we deserved. He didn't give us what we had coming to us. He didn't write the scales in that regard. He actually gave us what we didn't deserve. He showered us with grace, which translated means unmerited favor. He gave us what we didn't deserve. And so in the same spirit, church, we mirror God's character when we offer unmerited favor to those who have wronged us. Now, the second part of verse 45 is kind of a fun concept. Let me read it for you. Uh, second part of verse 45 says, for he makes his son to rise. Note that it's his son. He makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Theologians call this concept common grace. It's the goodness of God that's expressed to all, whether you love God and have bowed a knee to him and call him Lord and God, or whether you hate and despise him. God showers blessings and benefits to all of his creation. And he references sunshine and rain. If you're a Christian farmer and you've got a plot of land right here, and your plot abuts an atheist farmer who hates God and utterly denies his existence, it's not like the sunshine stops on the border. The sun is gonna give its sun to all the crops on the farmland. The rain is gonna shower on all. Whether you love God or hate him, you have the many gifts that you've received from him. That's called common grace. God is not discriminate in how he showers his blessings upon his creatures. Now, indulge me if you would for a moment to take a quick bunny trail. When I read this verse, I had just for whatever reason, a memory that shot into my mind from my time in seminary some 20 years ago. Um, I studied apologetics, uh, which is the defense of the Christian faith. I got a master's degree in apologetics at Biola University. And one of the things I loved when I studied apologetics was sometimes you'd see Christians debating non-Christians. And these formats were awesome, right? So you get a Christian back here on this podium and his job was to convince the audience and to convince his opponent of the reasonableness of his worldview. 
to try to give the truthfulness and try to explain why he believes what he believes. And the person on the opposite podium over here, he might be a Muslim, he might be an atheist. His job is to explain and express why he believes what his believes in the effort to try to win over the audience and hopefully even win over his opponent if he does a great job of it. But you're trying to not only make an offensive claim and defend your position, but also kind of deconstruct your opponent's position. That's what you see in these Christian debates. In one of the debates we read about at Biola University, it was an encounter between two men, G.K. Chesterton on the Christian side, who was an, an author and a newspaper columnist, and he was debating a man named George Bernard Shaw on the other side. And some of you youngsters in middle school or high school might say, I've never heard of that Chesterton dude, but I know G.B. Shaw. I can't think of why though. George Bernard Shaw wrote the play that you would have read in eighth grade English class called Pygmalion, also known as My Fair Lady. Uh, Shaw was an English playwright, wrote many plays. He was also an incredibly articulate and very intelligent atheist. Chesterton, a very witty an incredibly insightful and intelligent Christian. These men locked horns several times in debates. They literally debated each other dozens of times over their lifetime all over England. And the neat thing about it is they developed a really cool friendship as a result of these encounters as well. Well, in this debate I'm referencing, G.B. Shaw points over to Chesterton and says, Mr. Chesterton, you believe in a worldview where God not only made but governs the universe and your God is all powerful and all good. Why, Mr. Chesterton, in that world, do we experience so much evil and so much suffering? It's a good question. Chesterton from the other podium kind of ponders for a moment and he thinks for a bit about his response and then finally responds to Shaw and he says this, Mr. Shaw, that is a great question and I will answer it for you. But first I need to ask you to answer me a quick question before I respond to you, sir. He says, in my worldview, there is an all-powerful and an all-good God who not only created the world, but governs it. In your worldview, he's absent. There is no God of ultimate goodness that runs the show. He says, can you explain to me, Mr. Shaw, why in your worldview, you experience so much unnecessary goodness, common grace? And he gave some examples. He says, Mr. Shaw, why is sex pleasurable? He said, some of the lower creatures simply split in half to reproduce. Why do we get to experience the incredible experience of sex? He says, why do we see in color? Many of the lower animals don't see in color at all. My dog sees in black and white. Why do we get to experience color? Goes on. Why do we get to taste our food? It's not necessary for survival. Doesn't help with the passing of nutrients. Why do we get to taste our food? I had a steak last night. It tasted amazing. Why do we get that gift? And he gave multiple examples of these experiences of goodness. And he said, if I need to explain why God allows evil and suffering in a world that he created, you need to account for all the unexplainable goodness that you experience in a world that's absent of this God. I've heard of the problem of evil before as a Christian. I've never heard of the problem of goodness that exists for the atheist. It was a profound turn in the debate. My, friend, my friends, God's love is visible to all. We experience good most of the time. And the, the blessings that God provides all of his creatures are unmistakable and clearly visible. Let's keep going. The fourth summary statement we see in our text today is this. We are to exceed your fellow man. Verse 46 reads like this. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? 
Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Guys, fallen man is not incapable of loving. Uh, expressions of love are the regular experience between men and women outside of Christ. There's nothing unique about that. And Jesus is saying even tax collectors love those who love them. He's seeing even Gentiles love those who love them. I'd add even drug lords love those who love them. Even Democrats love those who love them. Even Republicans love those who love them. My friends, if we love only those who reciprocate our love, Jesus is saying that we're no better than swindlers or pagans. The bar for us, church, is higher. Look at verse 47. If you have a pen or a highlighter or a pencil, I want you to underline or circle or highlight one word in verse 47. The word is more. What more are you doing than others? Guys, it's not enough for Christian behavior to resemble that of non-Christians. Jesus Christ says we are to do better than that. Earlier in the sermon, verses 14 through 16, Jesus says we are the light of the world. And when our lives, uh, when we don't live differently than non-Christians, Jesus says our light is hidden under a basket. Jesus calls us to shine brightly, reflecting his life in us so that our lives might give light to the whole house. The house metaphor is to say our lives are to shine in a way that it's unmistakable to our culture, to our society, to our civilization. We're to live lives that are distinctly different. And we shine brightest for Christ, my friends, when we truly love those who have wronged us. Now, if we return evil for good, that's diabolical. If we return good for good, that's human. But if you return good for evil, that's divine. That's unmistakably otherworldly agape love. Now, if you were in this room three or four weeks ago when Rob taught on verses 38 to 42, you saw that he ended his teaching with a video clip from the wonderful story Les Mis by Victor Hugo. It's a story of Jean Valjean, who as a prisoner who did 19 years hard time, got out after serving his sentence, couldn't get a job anywhere. No one would hire him because of his background, because of his history. Couldn't get any place to sleep, can't get money, can't get a place for shelter. He's in trouble. He's sleeping on a bench outside in the cold and someone says, go to that house. He's like, I've gone everywhere. No, he's like, no, you haven't gone to that house. Knock on that door, they'll let you in. Knocks on the door, it's a priest. The priest lets him in. The priest shelters Jean Valjean, gives him a bed for the night, serves him a worn meal that he hasn't had in forever. And then Jean Valjean goes to bed. And in the middle of the night, he's woken up by nightmares going, I'm not gonna find the job. This is just a one-time gift. I'm, I'm in trouble. So he goes outside of his room, steals the silverware from the priest, starts loading it in his bag. And when the priest hears the commotion, the priest comes out to see what's going on. And Jean Valjean emer emerges from the shadows and pops him one. And then he runs off into the night. Well, moments later in the next scene, the priest has a black eye and the policemen in France, I think they're called gendarmes, pull Jean Valjean back to the priest's house. And the police say, ha, this man says you gave him the silver that's in his bag here, but we've brought him back, don't worry. And the priest says, he said, he said that I gave him the silver? He's right. But he says, Jean Valjean, I'm very angry with you. 
Why didn't you take the candlesticks also? They're worth a lot of money. He tells the policeman, he's telling the truth. Of course he is telling the truth. Let him go. He's done no wrong. And he sends the policeman off. And then he looks at Jean Valjean and he says, Jean Valjean, my brother. He says, I ransom you from hatred and from anger. And he pulls his hood back. And he says, you must use this silver to become a new man. I have ransomed you for God. And I send you back to him. And Jean Valjean's going, why are you doing this? What's going on here? He can't make heads or tails of the experience. I get goosebumps just remembering that scene because it's such a profound application of this truth. It is otherworldly when we love those who have wronged us in tangible expressions lived out. Guys, this is a game changer. This is our light shining brightest in our civilization. We are to love, to forgive, to pray for, and to seek our enemy's betterment. This is the gospel. I remember at seminary, I had a professor who said, guys, there's five gospels. You got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and you. And we got to remember, people don't get to heaven without God. They don't get to God without Jesus. So how do they get to Jesus? Two ways. They either happen to pick up this book and stumble upon the teaching inside this book, or else they have an encounter with someone whose life has been changed by Jesus. That's you. And are we shining his light well? Are we representing him well? The hard reality for all of us is that there's many people probably in our life who will never walk through that door. They won't walk into this church or any other. And the only Jesus they're going to see is the Jesus in us, in a life well lived. That's a responsibility, friends, that all of us need to carry. That's right here. Now let's move on to the last verse in our text today. Verse 48. Be like your heavenly father is the concept. Verse 48 says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Guys, I've seen this verse used uh, in standalone fashion to make a point that Jesus is not trying to make here. So I want to bring my own clarification to this, if that's okay. Uh, This verse needs to be understood in the context in which we find it, which means within the paragraph that we read it in and in the greater context of the Sermon on the Mount as a whole. I've seen some holiness teachers use this verse to build great dreams of the possibility of attaining in this life a form of sinless perfection, of a life without any sin. Uh, And there's some very respected Bible teachers who have held to the view that you can uh, achieve a state of sinlessness. Uh, John Wesley among them thought that that was attainable in this lifetime. I will tell you that I don't personally believe that. And I don't think Jesus is teaching that here at all. In fact, if you think that, that, that this verse teaches that you can attain a sinless state of perfection, you've got to force that meaning into it because that understanding is uh, it's, it's at odds with the greater teaching of the Sermon on the Mount. It actually causes discord within the sermon. What do I mean by that? Well, Jesus indicated earlier in the sermon, in the Beatitudes, that it was a hunger for righteousness and a thirst after righteousness that was the characteristic of a disciple. Well, you don't hunger for something if you already have it. You don't thirst for something you've already attained, right? So it's the longing for, the looking forward to, the desiring of righteousness that's the mark of the disciple. And in the next chapter, Matthew Matthew 6, he's going to teach us to pray constantly, forgive us our debts. 
why are we asking for forgiveness if we haven't done anything wrong, if we haven't sinned? These are clear indicators that Jesus did not expect his followers to become morally perfect in this lifetime. In this lifetime. So it begs the question, what does this verse 48 then mean? Well, the context shows that the perfection that he refers to relates to love. The per- we are to be perfect in love, which is the love of God, which means that we show love even to those who do not return it and perhaps do not deserve it. That's the perfection that we are to express, a perfect love of God. Now, I'm going to wrap up our time together today, and I'm going to do so with an audio clip in just a moment. I want to share a quick story, though, first. Um, Back in 2005, I had the unique privilege of traveling to Sudan, and I was invited to go participate in a short-term mission trip with Fellowship Bible. And I went to South Sudan, uh, to a very remote place there, and I met one of our global partners at that time, a man named James Bach. I've been back to South Sudan many times since then. I've probably been there a dozen times since 2005. And this place and these people have changed my life. Not only is South Sudan a place of incredible hardship, but I've met an unbelievably resilient and loving people there. On a couple of the trips to South Sudan, we took trauma counselors because what is unmistakable in South Sudan is that these people have been through a lot of hardship. They've been through tough, tough times. One of the trauma counselors on one of these trips had estimated that something like 80% of South Sudan's population would be considered clinically traumatized. They've been through that much hardship because nearly everyone in South Sudan has a story of watching a family member killed in front of them or they know of a family member or a loved one that's been raped or they've seen their house burned to the ground. Uh, the hardship these people have lived through is incredible. When, when I might struggle to know who is my enemy, in South Sudan, they don't struggle there at all to identify the face of an enemy. This is partly from a decades-long civil war and partly from generations-long tribal infighting where there's a cyclical nature of revenge. You've done me this wrong, I'll do you this wrong. You do that to me, I'll do this to you. And it goes on and on and on. Well, it was in this context that I met a man named James Bach. And James is a 13-year-old boy. His village was attacked by Islamic raiders from the north. They attacked and raided his village and all the children went fleeing into the wilderness. These children clustered together and did a massively long, like hundreds and hundreds of miles long hike to get to a refugee camp. These children became collectively known as the Lost Boys of Sudan. You may have heard of them. And James' one desire when he got to the refugee camp, his one desire was to acquire a gun so that he could go back and avenge his people to right the wrongs that had been done to him. But you know what happened? In the refugee camp, James becomes a Christian. He hears the gospel and he gets discipled. And when years later, when he would return to his village, he wouldn't go back with a gun. He'd go back with a Bible. And to this day, James plants churches. He trains pastors and he facilitates a whole bunch of workshops on peace building and reconciliation because he's got a lot of people that are struggling to apply the truths of this morning's text, to love and to forgive and to wish good upon those who've inflicted harm to you. I wanted James Bach's perspective on my sermon. I wanted to see how he applies this text. And I did a Zoom call with, uh, between he and I, uh, between here in South Sudan. You can appreciate the web is a little sketchy sometimes in that connection. Uh, but I recorded it on Zoom and there's one piece of that uh, call that had perfectly clear clarity and I thought it would offer some interesting insights into our message this morning. So can you go ahead and run the clip? This is James giving us some perspective on this part of the Sermon on the Mount. 
I, uh, I know that you have lived so much of this portion of the Sermon on the Mount in your own story. Um, you know, your own journey from how you became a, a believer, all the hardship as a lost boy, and then the desire to come back and avenge your people, and then how the Lord took away that desire and replaced it with love. Um, James, what's been the hardest part for you personally? Like when you think about Jesus teaching to love and to forgive your enemies, talk to me just in your own story, where, where and when has that been hardest for you personally to apply that? Um, okay. The, the, the hardest thing, um, the, what has been the, uh, what has been the hard, uh, for me is the fact that even when you forgive, even when you say, I am not going to revenge, mm-hmm. you still remember that when, uh, mm-hmm. like my friend whom uh, beat my head, Every time I see him, I remember my scar, the, the scar that he made in my head. And that is the hardest thing. You, you are still reminded. But because it is a decision that you have taken, I think the reconciliation is about decision, saying that I have forgo my right for me to revenge, my right for me to, uh, uh, to, 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 to return evil with evil. I have forgiven. That is a decision. But it doesn't remove the pain. It doesn't remove memory. You still remember what happened to you. And that is the hardest thing, uh, Mike. Uh, to be honest mm. to you, that is the hardest thing because you still remember. It doesn't go away. Uh, when someone does to you bad, it doesn't go away. And it reminds you. But because you have decided uh, that I'm not going to revenge, you still go with it. Uh, you still... Uh, I, I wish there was, uh, for, uh, I wish there is a, there was a way when you say I have forgiven, uh, I have forgiven Mike, then it goes away. I don't remember anything like that, but it doesn't happen like that. You still remember the pain can still be there. Uh, you, uh, the memory is still remaining there. That's the hardest part when you uh, make such decisions. It's hmm. a good word, isn't it? Uh, I have to admit I smirked because of all the stories of atrocity that James has shared with me. He told a story of a young man who bit his head when he was younger and left a scar. But the point is nonetheless profound. Seeing him reminds me of my scar. I think some of us in the room might resonate with that. We still carry our scars, don't we? Both physical and emotional We still have our wounds. And some of these were inflicted upon us by our enemy who was seeking our harm. And they serve as this constant reminder of what happened to us in the past. We can move on. We can forgive. We can long for the benefit. But we sometimes have this constant reminder that tells the story of what happened to us. My friends, I want to remind us of another set of scars. Some 700 years before Christ was born, there was a prophet named Isaiah. And he foretold that one would come who would be pierced for our iniquities, who'd be bruised for our transgressions, would say, by his wounds, we are healed. Let me ask you, have you ever noticed in the gospels how even in the resurrected state, Jesus is still wounded? 
Is that intriguing to you? Dwell on this for a moment. It's almost an insignificant detail, but it's profound. For we're told in the New Testament that in the resurrected state, we get renewed bodies. If you're blind in this lifetime, in the resurrected state, you'll see. If you're deaf, you can't hear in this lifetime, in the resurrected body, you'll have great hearing. And if you're an amputee or you're in a wheelchair, in the resurrected body, you'll be able to run. Why in the presence of that promise, when Jesus is in the resurrected state, does he still have scars? You ever thought about that? My friends, Jesus' wounds are eternal because when he went to the cross, he was paying for sins past, present, and future. He did this so that 2,000 years after he went to Calvary's cross, you would still be the recipient of the benefit that was offered at that time. We are inheritors of the gift of the cross of Christ, and it's only because of his eternal scars that we're still eligible for that. My friends, many of us feel like we're defined by our scars. Some of you have had hard lives. The amount of pain you've experienced through your scars and through your wounds, it's in some ways defined you. I want to let you know and remind you this morning that Jesus wants to remind you that he wants to define you by his scars today. Lord, would you help us to reflect on the truth of this message? Would you help us to look to a wounded Christ who paid a price for many, whose scars bring salvation to all who would bow a knee and receive him as Lord and as God? Lord, would you help us to process and to work through the pain we've experienced through our scars? Lord, they are part of our story. They're part of who we are. But for many of us, Lord, we get stuck. And we ask you, Lord, to help us to get unstuck today. Would you give us love for the one who has wronged us? Would you help us to move forward on our journey so that we can shine your agape love to the whole world? be a visibly bright indicator of a life that's been changed because of the love you have shown us. In your wonderful name, Lord, we pray. Amen.